just introduce the hypothetical theme. It's, um, it's um, is dying everyone's business? Is it? Is it? Is it really? So, um, look, we've been very fortunate to have James Valentine, who's very experienced at the hypotheticals, uh, come and manage this session for us. And we have a, an eminent panel, and of course I don't have my notes with me, and I'll forget you because of the stress of it all. Can I, uh, can I welcome to the panel, please? Um, um, firstly, have, having flown down from the Gold Coast uh, today, Professor Colleen Cartwright. <laughs> can I welcome also New South Wales's Chief Nurse, Susan Pearce. Uh, the manager of Allied Health at Brayside, Mark Bahagia. Um, someone who you all know and love, and I do too, Dr. Frank Brennan. Jenny McKenzie, who just can't stay off the stage. Our Royal Nurse. Our favourite intensivist, Ken Hillman. And last but not least, the youngster of the group, oh no, that's not true, um, the staff specialist at Calvary, Linda Sheehan. And of course, our, your, your, your glamorous, famous, fabulous host, Mr. James Valentine. Oh, there you go. That's better. Hello. That's the, the now we're ready to go. Hello, everybody. Hi, hi. I've got some notes here, so hopefully we'll be able to figure out what on earth I'm talking about. No, what on earth you're talking about. More, more to the point. You've met them all, right? You're all just officially introduced. We now know who you all are. So what we should do, really, is just launch straight into the scenario, into the idea, the little story that we're going to go through, and see where that takes us, I suppose. What do you think? Okay, well hopefully what this will do will bring everything you've been doing during the day, it'll bring it all together into, we'll consider, we're considering an actual case here. This is a, this is a true story. Uh, it's been written up, um, you know, names and places have been changed and that sort of stuff, but the idea was to go through an actual case and see what you would do in these, in these circumstances, see what you, you get out of it. I'm just going to adjust my glasses and there's some possibility I might be able to read this. Uh, <laughs> Sorry about that. Okay, here we go. True story about Beryl. Beryl is a 90-year-old woman. She's presented to her local emergency department with severe abdominal pain. Beryl's been widowed for many years. She lives in the Shire in her own comfortable home, which she shares with her supportive 65-year-old single daughter, Mary. To date, Beryl's been independent, alert and fully cognizant. Mary presents the emergency doctors with a copy of Beryl's advanced care directive outlining her wishes for end-of-life care. Beryl wishes not to have her life prolonged by futile treatment and in the event of a life-threatening illness, in the event of a life-threatening illness, and does not wish to be resuscitated under any circumstances. So Beryl's now in emergency department. Those instructions have been handed over by her daughter. She's subsequently diagnosed with a hernia and following a surgical review, the surgeon advises surgery for what is considered a reversible acute medical condition. Beryl declines the surgery. She feels she'll never fully recover from this and she's content with that. The surgeon, however, pressures Beryl and argues she will survive. She'll be able to pot around the house again and watch television, is what the surgeon suggests. 
Yeah, that'd be right, I hear. Bell's response, what makes you think I want to watch television? (laughs) (laughs) The surgeon insists that surgery is the only option as Beryl will die from an untreatable, reversible condition if she declines surgery. Well, I think we've got got enough to go on there. We've got enough to... to, uh, to start the ball rolling there. Excuse me while I flick back and forth a little bit here because, of course, I have no idea who any of you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> having just arrived. Susan. Yes. Oh, that'd be right. Hello, Susan. <laughs> well, what, I, what, I'd like, what I'd like to do, Susan Pierce, if we can begin yes. with you, Chief Nurse, yes. is just you've heard that scenario so far, okay? Yes. So what I'd like to do is just get a quick comment from each of you. You don't have to do the, the, the full the full spiel. What have you heard so far? What 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 would you think is going on? What's your reaction so far? Well, I think we've got a, a woman who knows what she wants, who has come to hospital and is quite clear in her wishes. And I think from a nursing perspective, as in the role of the patient advocate, which is a role that, that is uh, called to the registered nurses, uh, we would be trying to ensure that her wishes are met. And so it's her wishes that would be paramount here? Yes. The daughter is in line with that? That's what we've heard so far, isn't it? So the daughter and Beryl are in line. The surgeon's saying, no, 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 no. I want to do the surgery. Where, where does the nurse sit in that? Well, I think so long as she is capable of making that decision and whether people get very anxious about these things because if someone's declining something that's clearly going to save their lives, in the extreme, uh, if someone rejects that, I've had calls about this in the middle of the night in my previous mm. life, what will we do? Well, if the person's capable of making that decision, it's their decision to make. Those That, sh- that should stay. Dr Ken Hillman? Um, what would you do? Whoever made up this scenario is right on the mail. This happens every day, doesn't well, it? Well, it's true. This yeah. is not a made-up one. It this happen- is an actual case. It happens every day. Beryl doesn't want to have the operation. The surgeon is typical of every surgeon in this state. They are, they are, they are programmed in a very good way. They are programmed to save lives and make people better. So the surgeon is simply seeing a hernia. He knows he can cut open this belly and sew the hernia back together again. What Beryl knows is it's not going to be as simple as that because this abdomen is going to have to be left open. She's come into hospital because she's got pain. In other words, she's got obstruction, so the neck of the gut is all caught up there. Beryl's got it right, but Beryl will have this operation unless we develop different systems. Because right. Beryl is Beryl and she'll be intimidated. So you, the, the, it's going to happen. The operation's going to happen. From the, your well, point of view, that's what's going to happen. I, yeah, I mean, unless you've got a very strong Beryl and a very strong daughter. Right. But usually the doctor, uh, usually Beryl and the daughter will succumb right. because the surgeon has such a strong belief mm. that he can make this better at very little cost yeah. and she'll be pottering in yeah. a couple of weeks. Yeah. Beryl sort of knows she won't be pottering. Yeah, yeah. So... I, yeah. So the answer is we need we need a diff- we need another mediator in there who can be a proper patient advocate. Mm. All right, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, sorry, how do I say your name? Uh, Bahaja. Mark Bahaja, how are you? What 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 are you here here? Uh, one of the physio, but also allied health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so two things I guess that hit me straight away is a if it's a real scenario, it is. You want to get home. Um, 
to pot around and listen to James Valentine on the radio. That's true. <laughs> that's true. So that's, that's, that's true. where my... Uh, the perfect pottering yeah. accompaniment, can I just <laughs> say. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I know also um, you know, a, bit, a bit of music might go in there, but also uh, the pottering word is the one that in, uh, interests me. And I know also if the surgeon mentions the word TV again, she's just as likely to pick up yeah, a bag yeah. and want to go yeah, home. Yeah. Would, you so come, would you be able to come in at this point and support the surgeon in some way saying, actually, you won't be pottering around. I can help you with, 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 with your quality of life once you're back home. Uh, well, that, that's, I guess, where, where Allied Health as a whole might come in. From a physio point of view, we're interested in how she's been pottering out up to this point, mm. how she'd like to go about continuing pottering around. But um, would you be brought in at this, at this point? Probably not. No. 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 We're, but you might be able to offer that, that kind of insight, right? Like your life, if no, we're all sitting there saying, my life. Very unlikely at this stage. It, it is yeah. unlikely, yeah. but if surgeons sitting there going, you're going to pot around, Beryl says no. There, there might be an alternative. If you were brought in earlier, you might be able to offer an alternative? Yeah, more, more likely, if the scenario where the, where the, the surgery goes ahead, will be the ones who will help to get her back up and out right. of bed and see where we're at. Right. right. Colleen Cartwright. Hello. Hello. What have you heard? What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, first and, f <coughs> first and foremost, I think um, we need to be very clear on her legal rights, and her legal rights uh, with capacity are that she absolutely has the right to refuse any treatment, even life-saving treatment. Right. And if he touches her when she has said no, that's assault, mm -hmm. and he could be charged with assault. As it, does that ever happen? Uh, it's going to happen sooner than later mm. because every time I go out and tell groups of older people their rights, I think the medical profession have a contract out on me. Right. Um, <laughs> but is Ken Hillman right that, that what you're saying is technically and legally correct, but the surgeon will prevail? Is Ken right? Uh, the surgeon may try to prevail, and that's where Ken is absolutely right that she requires a patient advocate to stand up for her if she succumbs. Now, quite a few older people are quite tough themselves, um, she's written an advanced directive while, before she got this pain, while she was clear in her thinking, and she said, no, and she said now, no surgery, mm. no CPR, no futile treatment. And part of the problem is that people, surgeons and others, have silo mentality. Mm. He's looking at her hernia. Yeah. He's not looking at Beryl. Yeah. But at this point, she's also presented in the emergency department. There's nothing wrong with the surgeon looking at it from that point of view, isn't he? he there's nobody suggesting that she's nothing ended into him. the palliative stream or anything like that. She's just an emergency. Nothing wrong with him looking at that when she first comes in and then hearing from her, having given her his diagnosis and prognosis, mm. Um, and she has rejected that. Mm. And may I just quickly say that um, a colleague in Coffs Harbour, her mother had rejected heart surgery and her cardiologist um, wasn't happy about it. And his wife, who was also a cardiologist and was not her treating doctor, came and tried to bully her into having it. Right. And then when she said, no, I will not, said, well, we've washed our hands of you and walked away. Right. Yeah. Um, and she, I mean, he had no right even to be discussing her case with his wife, yeah. who was not this woman's treating doctor, yeah, yeah. and she had not given permission for yeah, her, yeah. him to discuss yeah. it with someone but I, else. But I suppose on the other hand, I mean, without, uh, you know, I have no knowledge as to whether this, whether the hernia is, is serious life-threatening as such, but in a sense, it, you could, could you argue that someone presents with the flu, a cut finger, and refuses treatment? I mean, what I'm saying is that the surgeon's going, look, you're, you're taking this too far. We can fix this. this. This doesn't have to be end of life for you. What, what's wrong with that view from the Nothing surgeon? wrong with him saying it. And if the person still refuses, he may not touch them. Right, right. Dr. Frank Brennan? 
Yes, I agree. I agree with what Colleen says. There is a central tenet, a tenet of law that any patient has the right to refuse treatment. I think um, your point is very fair, James, in terms of how serious this is. But once the surgeon is given a good, clear sense and informed the patient of exactly what's going on, the gravity of the situation, so that the patient can make an informed refusal of that. Once that occurs, I think then to push beyond that and to push in further and further, the risk is that there's a, another tentative law called undue influence, where the problem is that if you start to place undue influence pushing and standing over a patient, then that, that may, and there have been cases on that where, mm. where the doctors have said that, I also feel that at, that at a certain point, the doctor, the surgeon needs then to call in other colleagues to say, look, we need to deal with the symptoms because this woman's in a lot of pain right. and is likely to unfold this yeah, way. Yeah. Jenny McKenzie. Oh, sorry. That's, it wasn't you, Jenny. No, it, it was me. possibly me. It was possibly a surgeon. Seems to be the general enemy here this <laughs> afternoon. Uh, <laughs> no, they're wonderful people. <laughs> they're wonderful people. I mean, it, it is funny. It's funny how you, know, you immediately hear that attitude. I, I broke my leg a few years ago and the an orthopaedic surgeon, and after the, you know, several sessions, we discovered that you know this was the attitude. He had six of us lined up there with broken legs. Bzz, 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 there was, it, was all, it was all that sort of thing. It, was, it healed perfectly well, and that sort of stuff. We found the perfect thank thank you card for him. It was a it was a stern looking nineteenth century doctor who said, "I used to be an atheist until I discovered I was God." <laughs> 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 Jenny, what, do, what did you hear of this scenario so far? Well, in relation to that, oops, is that right? I'd be the antichrist. I'd probably go in and sit down with Beryl and have a chat, explain what palliative options are, probably have a chat discussion about her surgical options. Would someone have called you when she starts saying, I don't want this? Would, would you get the call? I work in a regional, regional centre and sometimes I've been asked to try and tame the unwieldy public and present a different viewpoint, either for pure patient choice, right. or I have been asked by an oncologist to persuade someone to have some treatment. Mm. Whoops. Um, and there's little scenarios like that, because my setting is different, but it would not be unusual to get a call from the emergency department, usually about quarter past four on a Friday. Right, <laughs> that's right. When I'm going away for the week, but you know, to But go reasonably ahead. early on, like surgeons diagnose, I want to operate, she's saying no, would I, they? I can get early ones, yeah. but I also have a litany of case studies of the very late. Of mm. the very late, right. And and are you saying you're brought in on both sides? The sur surgeon yeah. or emergency might ring up and say, look, this woman needs, you know, we're trying to persuade her yeah. to have the care, not we're trying to persuade her to go to palliative. And so sometimes I think if I explain the dying process and what may happen better, they, they might, she might suddenly decide that surgery is a good idea. Right. And what have you seen happen? Uh, quite a few go, oh, thank you, dear, that sounds lovely. When can we go home? And so right, you I'll, need I'll to stay with my decision. Yeah, I'll stay, and I'll back that and then... Put on the Kevlar undies and go and have a fight. <laughs> right. <laughs> and do you do you have any influence over uh, supporting the decision e either way? Like, are you able to influence surgeon at this sort of point? I'm a nurse practitioner, so right. I don't have obviously against the medical model, not a huge, uh, not a huge amount. Yeah. But sometimes, if it's as much as to shore up the family and their opinion, you you, you suddenly get Beryl going right, shoulders back, chin out, right. and hopefully give them a little bit more. Resilience, and right. they know what their alternatives are. So, what we need is strong, strong barrel, strong Mary. Linda Sheehan. Does this work? Yes. Okay. Um, so, I guess um, I've got two hats today. Main one is a palliative care physician, but also clinical ethics and bioethics. 
Um, and most of the comments I would make, I think uh, Frank and Colleen have primarily covered. I will say one thing, though, in defence of the surgeon, as best as I can. <laughs> Everybody's goal at the table is best interest of the patient, including the surgeons. Now, how they how they frame that may be God-directed, <laughs> self-directed, <laughs> egocentric, whichever way you want to uh, think about it. But his goal is obviously to do best for her. Um, but um, recognising that best interest is much more complicated than the doctors is how ethics has moved over the last 20 years, hence the now um, primacy, really, of individuals' own assessment of their best interests. Um, the second piece of that, I think, is also just that um, often surgeons are very light on information, so it might be might be fair to say he says I can fix the hernia we should fix the hernia but actually what needs to happen here is unpacking the rest of it mm. surgery looks like this post-operative recurrity looks like this these are the likely outcomes in either way mm. there is an alternative it's palliative this is what that mm. looks like so a lot more conversation would need to happen to really uh, make but sure and do you see that happen is that what would happen that not, here's, not usually here's our it's options? an orthopedic or general surgeon right. but um, <laughs> but it does happen if you have um, the right people at the table um, and I, I think it's uh, not the norm I think it's probably the exception it's not the norm yeah yeah and I, I mean I'm also seeing you know again without any particular knowledge but I'm seeing busy emergency department got a lot to deal with is the palliative option top of their mind at all absolutely not yeah I don't know if anyone wants to argue with that right Right. No, I, I think that in an emergency situation, and Ken probably will also um, have views on this, that, that that's the, the, the absolute priority is to working out, can, can we reverse what's occurring here? First of all, work, working out what's going on mm. and, and doing our very best to reverse this as quickly as possible. Uh, and then hopefully once things are stable, then let's now have the discussion about what, what's going to happen yeah, this yeah. morning. Is that the usual... How it goes. I mean, I'm just seeing that the, that in a busy emergency place, it's it's eight o'clock on the Friday night, or it's something like that. Is the oh, here's an elderly woman. We need to consider the palliative option. How how yeah. how how much in the frontal lobe? I, th I think I think um, one of the problems is trying to translate the ethics into the into the practical situation. Mm. Ten o'clock at night on a Friday night <coughs> in the ED, and that's what we're getting at. I think and. I th uh, you see, there you know that there are things like the four-hour rule. Uh, um, it's an administrative data goal that you've got to get everyone out of emergency departments in four hours. Now right. you're not going to get this person out by having lengthy discussions yep. with her and the daughter, finding community alternatives. Yep. The way to go to uh, you know to sort of achieve the four-hour rule is to admit the patient to the hospital and give her an operation. So there are all, all sorts of other yeah. complex things going on in that emergency department mm. at 10 o'clock, mm. which is the practical stuff mm. that you were just mm. talking about. All right, let's throw a little more in, into the mix and take this situation a little bit further. We might bring the children in. Daughter Mary wants to honour her mother's wishes, but she's now doubting herself as the surgeon insists that the situation is reversible uh, and will result in a positive result. Um, she's also, the surgeon's also doubting that her mother may not be understanding fully what's going on here, that she, he's starting to doubt that the mother's wishes are being met or that the mother's intentions are, are all that clear. I think we might bring down um, their son as well. Sun Tan son Xavier has arrived from far north Queensland. Um, he's here to sort things out. He's been unable to visit his mother for five years. He runs his own own business. He's recently remarried and has a young family. Um, 
I get the feeling Xavier's wearing shorts that are a little too tight. <laughs> Possibly a V8 supercar T-shirt, something like that. You know. Xavier's insistence is he wants the best thing to be done for his mother. He wants everything to be done for the mother. So what we've now got is we've got, let's say this is now the next day. You know, 24 hours ago, mate, she's been admitted to, to the hospital. But we've now got three different things. We've got Beryl's original directive. We've, we've got Mary wavering um, and starting to listen to the surgeon. We've got the surgeon saying, look, I'm not seeing that Beryl is actually in a state, uh, a fit state of mind. Uh, of sound mind to be able to make this decision. And we've got Xavier now who wants to take control and take charge. Buy on in anybody who would like to. <laughs> I'm seeing uh, perhaps Colleen wanting to leap in here. What, what's happened to that original directives about the, about the end of life? Okay. Um, it doesn't matter how many people are in the room. It doesn't matter what the doctor's saying. Her directive is still legally binding. There was some doubt in New South Wales about whether advanced directives were legally binding because it was one of the two states in Australia which had not put in place statute law with, re with respect to um, advanced directives. And the reason was that the working party in New South Wales said we don't need statute law because they're already binding under the common law. Right. Now, while that was true, there hadn't been a common law case in Australia and we weren't necessarily bound by UK common law, mm. um, although it was precedent. So the advanced directive is made at this point in Beryl's life, when she is of sound mind, everyone uh -huh. signed it and, agreed, and yep. agreed with it. It doesn't matter what she's like now. Exactly. And right. what I was just about to say is we had our first common law case in Australia in 2009 in Taree Hospital. The New South Wales Supreme Court has put beyond doubt, and I'm saying this in case any staff are still not 100% certain, there is absolutely no doubt advanced directives are legally binding in New South Wales mm. and it is against the law not to follow them. And it doesn't matter what Mary's thinking, it doesn't matter what Xavier's thinking. No. And if she hadn't appoint, written an advance directive and she hadn't appointed her own substitute decision maker, you would now have the interesting question of who out of those two would be her substitute <coughs> decision maker right. and that's not the question facing us. Right, the question right. facing us is that she does have an advance directive. It was written while she was mm. of sound mind. It clearly specifies no futile treatment, no CPR, no life prolonging measures mm. and this could be considered a life prolonging measure in that sense and she, mm. but she but what's why is he saying she doesn't have capacity now is it because she's not taking his advice mm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've seen it <laughs> yeah they're you not doing not what i said so they mustn't right. have capacity they must be crackers yeah yeah you're not understanding understanding what i'm seeing what's why is it, I mean, my co colleague's putting this in definite terms, as though you should all have this, you know, on a, it should be laminated on, on the, the wall somewhere. You all know this. This is, this is not the case. Let's hear from the nurse's point of view. You, you wouldn't, would you not know that so clearly? Would you not be able to communicate that? Why would this be unambiguous then? I, I think that for staff and, uh, confronted ambiguous. by those situations, nursing, medical, other, the, the medico, potential medico-legal ramifications for them, which are poorly understood, I think that is part of the issue here, is right. the understanding of what's just been said in relation to the legality of advanced care directives. But that is the question that I was confronted with in the very early hours of the morning. Similar situation, definitely not Beryl. Mm. Youngish male, uh, refusing surgery. Oh my God, what will we do? If mm. he doesn't have it, he will die, but he has clearly refused. Mm. And, you know, the advice was given. It, it is his right to make that decision. Mm. 
he, if he has the capacity to do so, which he did. Mm. Uh, so I think from my perspective for staff, this is something we need to be very clear about. Uh, people need to be know what that looks like for them so that they can operate within that framework. Having said that, no two days are ever the same yeah. and people are confronted with all sorts of different things and the different nuances that mm. exist which which are you know th there are a lot of dilemmas that we face linda how would you be managing xavier and mary at this point like they're obviously there they might be now so they've been there for some some time they're coming and going they're looking for information <coughs> they're they're wanting to be part of the decision how, how are you handling them uh, well, I mean, I guess going back to what I said before, there's a lot more ins and outs and pros and cons and things that need to be discussed. And yeah, they take time. And sure, the emergency department for our rule might prevent it in the initial being done well, but it doesn't make it any less necessary. Um, and it does give you a bit more grace once you're up on the ward to have that time and take it. Mm. You, it's extremely rare that, in fact, if you spend enough time with patients who have made palliative decisions, um, it's very rare that you can't... Um, go through that process and not come to an agreement at the end mm. okay so usually just discussing all of those pieces what the role of the advanced directive is what it means the relevance of capacity now being you know not not necessarily uh, 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 something that we need to question or that we need to bring up in this context um, I think unpacking things makes a big difference and usually families come to concordance now mm. the the Queensland son or child is very common um, it's usually North <laughs> Queensland and they normally come on Friday afternoon yeah, at six o'clock um, so that you can't spend that time um, if there was persisting conflict the reality is we would go back around the same cycle again until we found um, mm. a happy medium yeah Jenny you're, you're nodding there you've seen seen this sort of thing how do, you know uh, Ours is usually the son or daughter lawyer from Sydney or Melbourne. Right. The son or daughter lawyer from Sydney or Melbourne, so right. That's our scenario. Okay, so similar sort of thing. So yeah. Let's just say that even the conflict between Mary and Xavier. Mary wants what Beryl wants. Xavier, though, is insisting that this is not the, not the right thing. I'd just be persistent. And just You'd keep, be persistent. Yeah, just keep persisting and, well, it's actually your, your mother's decision. She's made this. It was made and, and try and outline the legal side of it, that it was a decision made. It was made while she was cognitively intact and that respect, you know, respecting her wishes is something that we should look at mm. and that we had had a conversation the previous day in emergency department and she is fully aware of the, the other options and she's aware in my mm. viewpoint. Does that, that work? She doesn't, sometimes it does. It's just a matter of being more persistent than the yeah. other party. Because both you and Linda seem to be saying the same thing, that, yeah. it, that if you talk it out and now that we're up on the ward and there's time... He wants... He lives away. He's been away for four years. Yeah. He's possibly over, you know, overcompensating from his absence by trying to be the active participant in care now. Yeah. And it, that's the way it often comes across. And maybe I'm a nasty little cow. <laughs> no, not right. <laughs> um, but, you know, that's the way it comes across. So it's yeah. a matter of trying to give them a crumb or six to solve their conscience and potentially bring them down to a level of, of, of recognising right. that they're being a dick. Yeah. Frank? <laughs> <laughs> yes. And being a dick is a technical medical term, <laughs> a diagnosable condition, I understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Frank? Um, one other phrase that you mentioned there, James, that we do hear is the, um, I want everything done. Please do everything done. Yeah. Whatever you do, doctor, 
purpose, just, just do everything, do everything, or we want everything done. And that can be driven from a lot of different uh, sources, of course, a sense of uh, I, I can't possibly live my life without my, my parent or my loved one still right. living. I am feeling guilty that I've spent many years away and I, I, this has just come crashing down on me right. as, as well as my parent. Um, uh, and also sometimes even infatuation with medicine, that, that medicine really can do things mm. and keep, keep, keep people going well mm. beyond what was, what was reasonable. So I think perhaps it's an interesting, and this would be a, a relatively common phrase in ICU too, wouldn't it, Ken, the sense of keep going, I want you to do everything yeah. for. Yeah. I, I suppose what, what probably that approach or the response of that is say, look, we're going to do everything that's reasonable. We're going to do everything that's going to be kind and gentle to your mother. Mm. Your mother clearly has, has got her wishes here. I can see how difficult this is for you, Xavier. Mm. This is really hard for you. And talking through that, perhaps coming towards that sort of bringing him involved so you, you can say, I understand exactly how you're feeling. Mm. <coughs> but on the other hand with this, and this is what we're going to do. Mm. I, I guess, Ken, this is... Well, an, sorry. Yeah, but but I, could, I could see, you know, I'm sort of putting myself in the scenario a little bit now and, and seeing that I might be going, it's just a hernia operation. Isn't it worth tossing the coin? You know, like why are we suddenly at the end of life thing? Why, why is that now being enacted at this point? It's just a hernia thing. I think I think if we if we come if we come back to this discussion, say that it's midnight in the emergency department. The only people there will be Beryl, Mary, and Xavier, and the surgeon. So there won't be ethicists. There won't mm. be palliative care yet, and that's the problem. Um, and I can see what's going to happen. This surgeon is going to be looking at Xavier and Mary, and saying, "Unless we operate, your mother is going to die." Now. That's a very, you've got to be very strong, very sure of yourself to stand up against that. And there aren't many people who can do it. So Beryl becomes a bit of a, sitting in the bed, the children are out there discussing with the mm. surgeon. Mary's losing her nerve, Xavier's got all these other issues of guilt and whatever. So they're going to go and talk to Beryl and they're going to say, look, we just had a chat to the surgeon. He says it's not a really big operation, as you say, it's just yeah. a hernia. Maybe we should do it. So th that's the reality of the situation. And that comes back to what I said about we need an advocate at midnight. Who that advocate is, maybe if we empower emergency nursing staff a bit more, who, you know, who, who, yeah. could, who could be that person? Because you need an advocate at midnight. Would that be right, Colin? Is that who should be in, empowered in that sort of area? I think nursing staff are already empowered in that regard. Right. I, I mean, people in the audience may have a different view. I, I don't think they need to be, give permi be given permission to, to be the patient advocate. Mm. But I think like every other health professional confronted with this scenario, they would be very challenged by it. Mm. And they'd be worrying about what's being documented in mm. the record and what's going to come back when Xavier loses the run of himself mm. after his mother dies. and. It, they all end up in coroner's court, mm. etc. Linda, you're not in agreement. I mean, and I, I'm wondering, like, do nurses get trained at this level of interaction, or is this just experience? You just you uh, advocacy is core mm. to training for registered nurses. is a core feature of what they are there to do. Right. Having said that, they are that you know not every problem can be solved, and it mm. cannot all rest on their shoulders. But it is a core feature of what they're there for. Mm. Yeah, Linda. Uh, 
I don't have any particular comment about that except to say that it, it is on the ground probably often very hard for a nurse in emergency yeah. in the middle of the night to confront a senior surgeon who's saying have surgery. Yeah. Um, even though nurses generally are wonderful advocates for patients in every setting I've ever worked, mm. I would think that would be very difficult on the ground. Mm. Um, but well, yes, they, they are on the front line. Yeah. Who else can do it? Well, um, that's a really good question. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, what do, what do you think, Colin? I, I mean, I just we're suggesting that nurses should be there being the advocate because Beryl's original yeah. wishes. What do you think? I, I have seen doctors say to nurses, who the heck do you think you are? This is right. my patient. What do you think you're doing? And that right. can be very intimidating. Right. Um, I, I also think that um, patient advocate, uh, patient advocacy is, is actually starting to be its own little profession. Mm. And, and I, I, I'm not apologising for the fact that part of my consultancy includes being a patient advocate. Right. Um, well, how does that happen? Do I request it? Uh, does Beryl request a patient advocate or is there um, just one Normally, on in, in, in the situation, if it isn't someone there on the ground at the time and people wouldn't perhaps know who to, who to be able to contact, in my situation, it would be just someone who d isn't happy with the treatment their mother's getting in res care or something like mm. that or um, a doctor who's not listening and, and ongoing care and then they can, mm. you know, say, can you please come in as an advocate? Yep. Um, and even for my own sister, when I went out to the desk and said to the nurse, um, how do we organise a palliative care consultation for my sister, having she'd just agreed to it, and the nurse very dismissively said, oh no, that's up to the treating team to organise that, at which point I said, how do we get the treating team to organise a palliative care consultation for my sister, and she went, oh, oh I'll make sure they do. Right. And a palliative care consultant right. came the next right. day. But that, that like, that's with your expertise yeah. and insight yeah. into... Exactly. I mean, m myself at that point or, or Xavier or, or, or Mary would just walk away, wouldn't yes. they? They yes. wouldn't know. So how, how do you ever get called, Jenny? How does it, like I stalk. You stalk. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's probably about the, the easiest answer. I actually cruise through and right. have a presence and ask if I've got any friends for me because I keep losing my friends. Yeah. So, and then that's how I get... <laughs> yeah. But that's how I get, you know, and that's how it's being, a, for me, in a regional hospital, being actually visual, a visual cue and a presence. Yeah. And I know just recently a patient who's been a COPD, frequent flyer, to use the phrase, it's not that popular, mm. um, the nurses have been doing a advocacy job for months to get the physician to hand her over and mm. done a big thing on the fantastic you know thing of uh, morphine and breathlessness they did a great job she got referred to me last week absolutely crapping herself because she thought morphine was going to prolong her life when she wanted to die mm. so you know that's mm. the other side of the coin is, is that is what you're saying there actually a perfectly reasonable way of doing things it, it's up to the palliative unit to be aware of what's going on in the hospital and to keep an eye on it and to perhaps go hey i you know, my, my response is the way that when I arrived in Wagga, it was seen as very much a nice little cottage industry for the cancer patients, right. which is not necessarily my worldview. Mm. And so it was a matter of, you know, building a foundation to get a stronger service mm. from. Here's a little more to, uh, to the scenario. Um, and perhaps this, um, let's see what this brings up. Beryl now wants pain relief and to return home to die peacefully, just as her husband did. Xavier states his mother's too old to make these decisions. Mary suffers from anxiety. I don't know what you'd be making much younger than Beryl now, but you know, uh, Mary suffers from anxiety and depression. Has never lived apart from her mother. So Mary's also in Xavier's also insisting that Mary doesn't have a clue either, uh, and that we shouldn't be listening to to Mary anymore. Mary wants her mother to go home and wants some palliative care support. But should we just consider pain relief for a moment? Is that is that 
is, is that a central thing here? Here's somebody asking for pain relief. Does that then become, uh, you know, whose job it is to determine that and whether that goes to the palliative stage? We start with you again, yeah. Najee. I think it's more than reasonable that she gets some good um, symptom mm. control. And, and often on this sort of situation, I often say to people that this isn't going to affect if you wish to change your mind and pursue a treatment option. Mm. This will not um, affect that at all. Right. So try and get sneak it in there on the old alongside, so then right. you can gently bring them over to the yeah. to respect wishes. Are there, are, there, are there scenarios where, in fact, palliative gets called to do the pain relief? Yeah, but it's not necessarily you're not necessarily being called to be palliative. You're Although being called in to be her case, relief. you probably it depends because ninety anaesthetic review they might get the an, an anaesthetic people to mm. do that as well. Just depends. Yeah, Colleen. Well, firstly, she says I want it. She has capacity. She should have it. Right. Um, and giving adequate pain relief, and this is something that, let's hope Xavier isn't one of the tribe of people out there, because if she was given pain relief and then if she happened to die, he, that he doesn't start saying that was euthanasia. Right. Because given, at, given giving adequate pain relief, even at, if it's the right combination of drugs in the right doses at the right time intervals, it normally will not hasten death, but even if it does, it has nothing whatsoever to do with euthanasia. Mm. I'm going I'm to leap straight into that. That, that scenario, that, that is part of what, what happens. Let's le leap onto that. Xavier does actually start to threaten that kind of thing, legal responses, and also to go to the media, that they're, that they're trying to euthanise his, his, his mother. Linda, what would you do? <laughs> you uh, the, the lucky thing is, this is why I'm on the panel. <laughs> Euthanasia is my topic at the moment. No, um, look, um, the f the first part of that question is probably better answered by someone like Frank with more experience in terms of the palliative care perspective mm. on that. The short summary of of I don't know if you want to do that first, Frank. Do you want to do that first? Oh, you can do that first, yeah, Frank. Just yeah, yeah. Okay, so Here's Xavier jumping up and down. Yes. He's trying to yes. take over. Yes. Xavier's yes. putting himself central yes. into all of this, and now he's threatening media yes. And, yes. And, and legal yes. repercussions. So, so in addition to all that highly agitated response, I guess the, the the critical issue is getting her comfortable. We've got to do that. Now we will have the conversation with Xavier, but I will be saying it very clearly to Xavier, irrespective of whether the operation goes ahead or not. This is a very painful condition we've got to get your mother more comfortable mm. and this is a this is a and it's very interesting the studies on pain management uh, around hospitals around the community there's there's clear issues of deficits of pain management inadequate response to pain Beryl's 90 and often that mm. generation can be quite stoical I'm, I'm okay don't mm. fuss uh, yes but 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 that, that I think that from the excellent the ex-emergency physicians, from the nurses, everyone's priority needs to get this woman, uh, get Beryl comfortable. Right. We do, and perhaps I might then turn to Linda in mm. terms of this this question now, Xavier's posing. But would that happen if he's if he's done jumping down, and go yes. legal legal yes. media? Yes. Do the medical needs of Beryl start to prevail, or do the legal threats and the potential for problems down the track start to? The, the to medical the, uh, the the medical um, imperatives would would be absolute uh, front and centre, and also uh, reading the law. The law would be absolutely behind the doctors and nurses at this point, not to prevaricate, not to wait. In fact, in in fact, dereliction of. Of, of giving pain management potentially could be negligence. Right. So the, the getting her comfortable is an absolute priority. Yes, we can have these these discussions about what ramifications. Mm. Now, I suppose also to say to Xavier, as part of that discussion, we're going to meet the pain. We're going to give the analgesia in proportion to the pain. We're not going to be deliberately excessive, and but he may not 
listen to that. He may mm. say, whatever you're doing is hastening her life, right. uh, hastening her death. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I guess following on to that, you know, the first piece is good palliative care is not euthanasia and doesn't shorten life. <laughs> the only grey zone that probably is left for us to sort out now that we've sort of sorted out in the literature and within our practice, the issue of opioids and titration that's proportional the only grey zone left really is the terminal sedation piece and really only terminal sedation over significant time as in more than two weeks minimum. So um, that is still a grey zone that we need to discuss in, and sort out amongst ourselves in terms of life, uh, a death hastening practices, mm. okay, potentially. Uh, but we're not anywhere near that in this context. Mm. This is driven primarily from Xavier around misconceptions about what we do. That's very common. We deal with that almost every second referral that we deal with. I mean, the other piece around euthanasia is a little bit more complicated um, as a profession. And, and, and as I said, because this is the reason Drone asked me to get on the panel is to, I guess, raise this because it's something for us to think about, is that at the moment um, our current practice lies within the law um, and the law um, is supportive of how we manage patients in this context. However, the push for legalised euthanasia and or physician-assisted dying is very, very strong. There is a very, very high proportion of support within the Australian community for legalised assisted dying. Um, and at the recent ICEL that we were both at, I was actually quite shocked to um, feel and hear and see in the room the very significant swell of support within um, legal academic um, and um, uh, ethics communities that is supportive of legalisation of assisted dying in the Australian context. So it is something that we're going to have to engage in in a more rigorous way going forward. At the moment, our stock standard responses and the things we're very used to doing work very well in the legal framework, but it may change significantly if legalised assisted dying comes in mm. and comes our way, and that will have is something, I guess, for us to reflect on. Is the reverse of, of Xavier's position that you encounter people who are saying, why don't you help her? Um, you know, I'm a supporter of euthanasia. Yeah. Why aren't you doing more? It's okay. Isn't that what she said in the instructions here? Yes, really? yes, James. That's absolutely said. So, so you, you're quite right. There can be the, please don't be giving her this, this medicine because it may hasten her death. And the other way is look, no one should be suffering like this, please, mm. please do this. Yeah. So yeah. It, it, so both both can come to us, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Colin, what's the difference between the, the, the instructions, the direction, and euthanasia? Well, firstly, um, the an advanced directive allows you to request, once you've lost capacity, anything that is currently legal. So you could, in fact, ask for euthanasia in your advanced directive, but the it wouldn't be legally binding. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, even in places where it is within the legislation of the specific country for euthanasia to be part of an advanced directive and to be honoured, it doesn't happen. I was talking to colleagues in the Netherlands the other day about um, you know, our requests for euthanasia in an advanced directive honoured, and my colleague over there said very, very seldom, and I said, why is that? And it's because the doctors over there are so conscious of having to prove that they followed the regulations of prudent practice and prudent practice includes a recent and repeated request and if the advanced directive was written 12-18 months ago then um, they can't be certain of that. The difficulty there is that when people have started to realise that their request for euthanasia in an advanced directive is probably not going to be honoured, then they're asking for their life to be ended before they would otherwise want it to be, before they lose capacity, because yeah. they're afraid that it won't be respected 
expected otherwise. But um, it's really, really, really important that people get clear what is and what is not euthanasia. Giving adequate pain release, relief, even if it hastens death, while it usually doesn't, but even if it does, is not euthanasia. Removing someone, futile treatment from someone where it's just prolonging their dying mm. is not euthanasia. And something the staff might want to think about in such situations, if you have someone who's being, whose dying is being prolonged, and change your language, you're not prolonging their life, you're prolonging their dying, um, and you can say to someone, look, I realise you're grieving and you don't want your mum to die, but she is going to die soon. And what I need you to help me to understand is why are you asking us to prolong her dying? Mm. And often they'll go, oh, 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 I'm not asking you to prolong her dying. Well, that's what we'd be doing if we kept the ventilator in place or the dialysis machine or mm. peg feeding. Well, peg tubes shouldn't be in someone with, um, who's lost capacity anyway. Colin, thank you. Uh, here's what uh, happened to, to uh, Beryl a little further. Beryl's refer referred to the palliative care team for pain management and assistance with future care goals. Beryl is becoming frail and despondent. We're now some days on in this, this scenario. Palliative care teams suspect a malignancy based on Beryl's history and presentation. They advise Beryl is not suitable for further investigation in light of her wishes and suitability for treatment options. Sun demands investigations and Beryl reluctantly agrees to a scan. Beryl collapses post-investigations and cardiac arrest called and the outcome is Beryl is admitted to the intensive care unit <laughs> where she is intubated. This is this is true. This is not an ex this is just a true case that they they wrote down and and changed that. I might take us a little further. Uh, this is where Xavier started in insisting that his mother's care has been ne negligent, tantamount to euthanasia. He's still insisting on cancer treatment even without a definitive diagnosis. He feels his mother's care has been marginalised because of her age and the crisis situation. Excuse me here. Um, nursing staff involved in Beryl's care experience moral outrage over the decision-making process and feel protective towards Beryl but unable to have a voice as nurses are often seen as custodians of compassionate care. Um, you know, this is the kind of moment uh, to have to bring you in here, Su Susan. You know, we, we've full circle. We're back in intensive care. We're not in emergency. We're back in, in intensive care. The nurses are now getting upset at, at what they see, see going on here. Uh, look, I, I think what is when I've been listening to this all the way through, what's underneath it all from my perspective is our culture in people don't die. We don't want people to die. Our expectation <coughs> is when someone goes into hospital that they are cured. And that gives rise to running off to the Herald or whatever the case may be. Um, so, so from a cultural perspective, that is a big challenge for us, I think. Uh, Yes, look, of course, um, in, in, if you want me to comment about nursing staff and, and their experiences around this, yes, they do experience, I think, at times, um, you know, a lot of emotion around what is happening to patients and they can feel very powerless. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I would like to think um, that they do uh, use everything in their, in their arsenal um, to, to, uh, to do what they can to mm. correct the situation. Mm. And yeah, um, <laughs> that's a pretty real scenario, and it happens every day. And um, and it's well, I mean, it's 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 a complex area, but a lot of this has happened before they get into intensive care. Societal expectations, media, yeah. which say there's great advances on medicine, we can save everyone's life, as Sue said, and all that sort of thing. There's really a day goes by when we don't do a ward round when we look at people like Beryl and say, please don't ever let this happen to me. 
and so you've got to wonder how the hell it's happened. It's crept up on us, hasn't it? You know, it's not a, you know, like it's not a conspiracy. Nobody's wanted it. Most Australians want to die at home. So can I just go back to the euthanasia? I mean, it, it's not, it's, you know, that we need to separate the way most people die in hospitals and certainly in my, in my intensive care is withdrawing and withholding treatment. 99% of people die because we've made a decision not to treat any further. So um, it's not, you know, so that's sort of different from, you know, that's different from euthanasia. And we always need to make that clear to our society that, you know, you know that we're not deliberately killing people. These people are dying naturally. And we're making sure they don't do it by suffering. Now, there aren't many Xaviers. You'd think there'd be a lot more Xaviers than what they are, but the, you know, than what there are. But when you do get a Xavier, they are difficult. They are really difficult. They're either lawyers or, or physical people that threaten you. And, uh, <laughs> and okay, so what we do with these people is just keep talking. Um, and over the years, I've developed different techniques because there aren't, I mean, there aren't too many textbooks on how to deal with this. And so we pick it up and we talk to each other about it. What I'm doing is increasing, increasingly using guilt. And I find, <laughs> I find that works. Uh, many of the churches <laughs> discovered that thousands of years ago. Could <laughs> <laughs> you picked up on it? <laughs> so I look at Xavier and I say, your mother's really suffering. You know what it's like when you get a crumb down the wrong way and you're coughing and how unpleasant that is? Look at the size of the tube that we've got down your mother. Mm. And, and this is not nice for her. Is this really what you... So, you know, over, over the last few years, I've, I've learned I've this sort of language and I find that it works most of the time. Mm. Then you, actually, then you actually work on Mary as well because you need to support Mary and make her not feel guilty. And, and so, but it's extensive, com you know, sort of extensive conversations. Yeah. It's, only, it's only really, really rare that people then ring lawyers. I've yeah. only ever had that happen once. Yeah. Jenny, at this point, Beryl seems to be coming and going out of palliative care. She's with you for a moment, then she's back in, I, I, in ICU. When, if she goes off to ICU, that's it for palliative care? No, it's stalker. You'd stalk I just her. Keep yeah, a bit, right. bit stalky, really. No, I'd follow her in. And because quite like Ken said, the intensivist wouldn't be truly committed to really keeping her alive in most cases. So mm. having that team front and united presence, mm. that there is an alternative. Are you welcome in ICU? Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they haven't changed the door code lately, yeah. so I'm thinking I'm yeah. still OK. Yeah. <laughs> right. Is that what you find, Frank Brennan? Like the, 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 the way Jenny's describing it as a sort of presence that can that, that can be there that is that is not insisting but is ready to 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 work and ready to 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 take over does that work yes and I is that welcome in all departments as such I th look i think it probably would vary from icu to icu but i i think that 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 sense as jenny has said of, of a collegiate response to this that all of us are going to perhaps, and certainly we have had some uh, um, earlier involvement with the pain management, so I think it would be legitimate for us to continue on and check on check on how that's going. Sitting with the ICU con uh, team, I think, particularly where you're dealing with uh, very difficult situations, they, they may need some support as well. Both of us might, might need some support as to how, how we're going to deal with this. I do like um, Ken's um, view that we need to not only be dealing with the, the very um, agitated Xavier, but also Mary, mm -hmm. because Mary is really struggling here. She clearly, well, 
the, the great sense of love for her mother, but living all these years with her mother, the sense of anxiety. And the last thing she needs to feel is a sense of, of, of guilt, that she's sort of letting her mother down. So I think supporting her would be very important. Let me read you through the, the rest of the scenario and then perhaps... Where's the surgeon now? Where's the surgeon? I'm not sure where. He's gone golfing. Um, <laughs> skiing Japan, I believe. <laughs> Marvellous time. And Mary may also be quite fearful of she can't live alone. Where's she going to go? Yeah, yeah. Um, let me read through to the end of the scenario, perhaps, and then some, some final comments as to, uh, as to what you heard. Beryl's condition deteriorates further. She's finally discharged from ICU after seven days and discharged back to a medical ward. She's no longer able to return to her home as she's in need of full nursing care. The son is still not content with decisions and now blames the morphine for his mother's decline. He often refuses the pain relief as the team are trying to bump her off, is what he believes. The nurses are in a dilemma. Palliative care team suggests that Beryl be transferred to a palliative care unit as she was now stable but diminished. The unresolved goals of care and family distress delay transfer as the palliative care unit is insisting on resolving these issues prior to transfer. Nursing staff still feel Beryl's care has been compromised but are happy for, for her to stay in their care. Beryl's condition continued to deteriorate and she eventually died whilst on a waiting list for a bed. Uh, that was, that's a real scenario, that, that's what happened. It happened over a period of 42 days from the time Beryl arrived with clear instructions about what she want, wanted to do and it was 42 days later before she died in hospital. The complete opposite of what she said she wanted at the, at the moment she arrived. We'll just go through the panel again, perhaps some, some final comments. Ken? Oh, yeah, that's awful, isn't it? Um, well, you know, we, we've actually tended these days to keep, to keep the patients with us in the intensive care unit for the dying process. I'm not, I'm not saying for 42 days, but, you know, most times we actually keep them in the intensive care because we've had all these difficult discussions. We know the relatives, they've got to trust us, and, we, you know, we've got better staffing levels and whatever, so we, you know, we, we've moved to a model where we either keep them or we refer them to people who know what they're doing, palliative care. I don't think at the moment the general wards are a good place for dying patients. It's, they're too busy, they're too stressed, they're programmed to cure and look after. Um, so I would have kept Beryl, but I couldn't have kept her for 42 days. So well, that's, that's the entire that, length of the process. Yeah. She was probably with you for, I think it says seven or... Yeah, so or therefore seven. I'd be having... I'd be having discussions with palliative care, discussions with the relatives. Once we've got Xavier under control, then you know, then we say the best care for your mother is under specialist mm. experts palliative care. So I'd move yep. her from ICU to palliative care. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there was a, an interesting issue there at some point, Susan, almost like a conflict between the nurses in one area saying, "Look, we can do the best for Beryl," and then the palliative care nurses, you know, wanting wanting resolution. Uh, look, I, I think um, back to what I said before in relation to the culture of, of our, you know, system and, and our population. We we need to start to shift that, um, and really, what it comes down to from my, I mean, that is very sad. And mm. you would really like to think in this day and age that it it doesn't still happen, but it it obviously does. I think it, we need to educate our staff. We need to do more of things like this, but with staff that are outside of the palliative care environment mm. so that they actually understand what resources are available to them. And that's something that does worry me in health, not infrequently. We do operate at times 
in silos and I think the more that we can we can educate ourselves around these issues the better off we'll all be and reduce the conflict along the way mm. because frankly our patients don't need us squabbling with each yep. other. Yep. Mark Beryl never came to your attention at all in, in, in a lot yeah, of ways no, but what yeah. but what did you hear through that, that whole scenario what, well, what's your I summation? Mean, Allied Health would have been um, would have been you know sort of in the background of some of the acute stuff when she started to deteriorate working with the nurses with transfers those sort of things um, the social workers would have probably may have been involved with Mary and certainly towards the end with, with some of the support there. Um, it would have been lovely to have had her in the palliative care unit for the last few weeks, you know, spending some time with the diversional therapist in the sensory garden or spending so having, having the massage therapists give her a bit of, bit, bit of joy or those sorts of things. So uh, really it's, it's a, one of those sad cases of missed opportunity. Uh, look, I guess there's a couple of things. I, I guess there's a, a sense of disappointment there that an inpatient palliative care unit would, would say, look, we bring the patient only when things are resolved because I think an inpatient palliative care unit can deal with... They, they will deal with on a daily basis all sorts of uh, difficult situations, including uh, family conflict. So I think that that's perhaps um, just a, a little concern there in that story. Um, I guess the other aspect then would be the preparation for the dying process because we need now to and we do know from literature that the family will remember this forever Xavier and Mary of course this whole this whole difficult period making sure that or almost calling them to a point of some peace to say look I, I know this has been very very difficult and how, however you, you see each other you are each other's greatest allies here your mum is going to die for, for the sake of your mum, let's let's be gentle here, gentle with yourselves, gentle for your mum, and let's prepare this because because this is very important that this this beautiful mother you have is cared for well and loved all the way through. Uh, look, I mean, obviously, it's a really sad testimony to a lot of system issues. You know, from the surgeon's initial kind of interaction with the patient, their ownership. The potential involvement of palliative care, then not for not NFR order, even though they've chosen the palliative route, the whole thing, um, and, and and particularly the transfer to the palliative care unit. That's a shame. That's driven also, I think, through a lot of the pressures on beds that we're getting in the inpatient units that we never used to have in the hospice type uh, model. But I just, uh, for me, I'd like to sort of come back to this issue of the advanced directive. Um, at the moment, and for, for some years, has been very much a a core business of how we think we might be able to solve many of the issues within healthcare. And from my perspective, um, the, the individual autonomy driven model that we're sort of turning into from a health um, structure perspective, from a values perspective, is very valuable but also highly problematic. And autonomy in the healthcare setting is almost by definition relational and that's still not truly understood through the ethics, it's still not truly understood in how we translate the ethics at the bedside. Um, and even with all the right things in place and the perfect advanced directive and a capable patient with very clear instructions, it doesn't work like that. Um, so I think actually going back to understanding again what values are important to us will help us restructure how we think to solve these types of issues. Um, and that's the take home message for me. Colleen. There's a couple of things here. I am very sad for Mary because Mary did everything right. Mary um, had her advance directive. She thought it all through. She clearly understood what she was doing. Um, and she had capacity when she did that. But right from the start, 
her wishes were not respected. Um, she was being overruled and that had a snowball effect. Everything that happened followed from that. Um, you did say, I think, James, that uh, she was given CPR after she arrested a 90-year-old in her condition being given CPR. I think they've been watching too much American TV. Um, even in the hospital being given it there, the dis uh, survival to discharge is about 5%. Um, <clears throat> and one uh, registrar who told me the family were insisting that he gave CPR said he could feel the old lady's bones crunching under his hands and he had nightmares about it for weeks afterwards. Um, so uh, first do no harm, primum non nocere, that's your first rule, first do no harm. Now I'm going to probably take a side issue here which isn't as important to me as Mary but it's still a valid point to everybody to consider. How much did 42 days of Mary in uh, intensive care and everywhere else cost the health system and who missed out on treatment that could have benefited them because of that? So we've got a wider systemic problem as well as the individual patient yeah. problem. Jenny. Um, for me it sort of highlights that, that probably unfortunately palliative care is yet to be everyone's business. I was saying to Frank earlier it's about communication. It's the beauty of words how we can persuade people by using good choices the crumb versus the tube and things like that to actually persuade people that there's a better way. And unfortunately, effective communicators aren't, well, I think we might be born. And I don't know how we teach people because I certainly didn't go to a course to learn how to communicate to dying people <coughs> and things about end-of-life care. It's something I learnt by putting yourself out there and tightening up and going, righto, so I'm going to pray, here we go. And that's that was how I learnt my strong advocacy advocacy, ooh, advocacy skills, you know, in my role. And, and it, that's just furthered with nurse practitioning. So I think, um, oh gosh, you just want to pick her up and take her home nearly. And I, I'd have to say for that end point, I would have probably busted my chops to try and get her out of hospital and try and broker to deal with Superman Xavier. Well, at this point uh, of the uh, of this documentary that we've we've gone through, the credits would roll, and you would be saying thanks very much to the panel, uh, Susan Pierce, to Marpa uh, Haja, Dr. Ken Hillman, to Colleen Cartwright, to Dr. Frank Brennan, to uh, Jenny McKenzie, and to uh, Dr. Linda Sheehan. Thank you so much. Fantastic. The, uh, the credits would roll, of course, and then up would come these little boxes which would tell you what happened to all the people. And it would say, the surgeon returned from skiing in Japan, <laughs> was so horrified at what he did, he had a total breakdown, is now a social worker in Dubbo. Xavier <laughs> <laughs> returned to Queensland to find his you know, third wife had run off with the, with the business and his children. Um, he now runs a Jim's mowing franchise in Mackay. Mary inherited the house, which uh, turned out to be perfectly suitable for 16 townhouses. Um, <laughs> knocked the whole thing down. Uh, she took up uh, yoga and Pilates. She married a much younger man who's a very strapping young Pilates instructor and was named Cougar of the Year <laughs> in a uh, terrific uh, calendar competition that she went into too. So it ended very happily all round, really. Um, so thanks very much to the panel. Thank you very much for coming. I found it fascinating, so I hope you did too. And, uh, thank you.